Hi, welcome back to Positive Connections Radio. This is Mike Cook, and this is episode 50. It's titled, Fighting Through the Darkest Times in Law Enforcement. And today we have returning guest, retired U.S. Air Force Captain and Police Sergeant Michael Segru. And Michael speaks up about smashing the stigma and going all in to get the help that you need. How our command staff, showing their true leadership abilities, can set the bar and open the doors for officers for getting mental health assistance. Trusting that it's okay to ask for help. You know, asking for help before it's too late to keep our job and perform our duties once honored and respected with the passion of helping others. How can we help others in these times of chaos when we refuse to admit that we need help ourselves? And if you're interested in contacting me and supporting Positive Connections Radio, you can locate us on Facebook, Positive Connections Radio, and like the page, or go to PositiveConnectionsRadio.com and see all the episodes. Additionally, this year, I started working for a program in Newport Beach. It's called First Responder Wellness by Simple Recovery. And as you all know, I started this podcast to reach out around the country to find those legit and trusted and confidential places that claim to support first responders, specifically first responders only, and provide quality help concerning PTS, alcohol, drugs, or just general mental health issues. The program I'm working for is specifically for first responders. First Responder Wellness by Simple Recovery is legit, and our team is amazing. We work together to provide the most confidential and trusted help for first responders. And, you know, the men and women who come into our program become part of a first responder fellowship. And this community has the support understanding and family feeling to it and we have a mix of uh, fire police border patrol you name it all first responders and it, it really is a good place i am very grateful that i get to work with these men and women on a daily basis i'm telling you check us out look us up come and visit us call us up and you'll, you'll see what it is. There's, there's a lot of healing going on here. So I wanted to put that out there that my main goal is to provide or refer others that are in first responder-related positions to the most appropriate and confidential places, no matter where they're at. So enjoy the show. This is Michael Segru. And know that you're not alone. There's people waiting for you to finally stand up and fight for yourself and get the help that you need. So enjoy the show. Have a good rest of your week, and I will talk to you guys soon. Hi, this is Mike Cook, and welcome to Positive Connections Radio. This show is intended to help break the stigma of mental health issues among first responders. I know from personal experience how PTSD, depression, and addiction can take over your life while suffering in silence. I was a police officer for 19 years and spent the last 10 years of my career as an undercover narcotics detective. I didn't reach out because of fear, lack of trust, shame, and stigma. It took me losing it all before I got help. With a new perspective and passion for life, I can now help others find a way out. Working together with peer support, wellness units, 
and the mental health and recovery field, we can bring about positive change for the ones who protect us all. The guests in this show offer unique and valuable information, support, and experience, and are the voice for those waiting to be heard. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to the show, Michael. It's great having Thanks for you. having me. It's my pleasure. It's been a while since you've been on. It was actually uh, June of uh, 2019 before all this stuff uh, started happening around us. And you have quite a story and uh, you've lived quite a life. So what has happened in the last year? You want to, so people that haven't actually um, maybe heard you on my show, I mean, you've been on other podcasts before. Can you talk a little bit about uh, where you're from and give a little background and, and we'll just take it from there? Sure. Yeah, I, uh, I'm out in the San Francisco Bay Area, so I'm probably about 40 minutes outside of San Francisco. I'm currently a retired police sergeant from the Walnut Creek Police Department. Uh, where I served there for about 14 years, worked a variety of assignments, including officer, field training officer, in-house detective, uh, undercover special agent on a state drug task force, public information officer, and eventually patrol sergeant. Uh, Prior to that, I was in the Air Force. I served about six and a half years active duty as a security forces officer, Uh, made it to the rank of captain, and security forces basically is anti-terrorism, law enforcement, force protection. I served in South America, the Middle East, and Europe, and all over the U.S. Um, so I have about 21 years total law enforcement experience, uh, both through the military and the civilian side. Uh, where I'm at now is I went through a journey with my career. Um, I was involved in a pretty big traumatic incident, which ended up just taken a drastic toll on my life, which at first I really wasn't aware of and was kind of in denial and things just gradually got worse and worse and worse until eventually I, I got the courage to, to ask for help. And when that happened, that was back in the end of December, 2016. And I went on a, a few years journey uh, doing different things, counseling, going to peer support meetings, uh, the West Coast post-trauma retreat. And just really working on myself and working on these traumatic issues that I had been exposed to. And so where I'm at now is I'm in my recovery phase. I'm doing outstanding. Um, Like you said before, I've been on a bunch of podcasts, done some news interviews, um, speaking at agencies across the United States, mostly law enforcement, but also speak to clinicians, therapists, uh, the VA, Unfortunately, with the whole Corona thing, that's really put a stop to actually speaking in person. And so a lot of that's gone to uh, virtual conferences, Zoom meetings, and podcasts such as this. So I'm just basically trying to get the message out that there is hope, um, there is recovery, and things do get better. And I know that's kind of like a quick synopsis. Um, but I'm just at a really great point in my life now. And I'm trying to, my main purpose is to what I call smash the stigma. And the stigma is what prevents first responders, including veterans and, and just the general public for that matter, of asking for help when they need it. Because there's a stigma that it's a sign of weakness and that you're going to be looked down upon. It's going to end your career. And that stuff's not true, frankly. I mean, I believed it myself. And now that I'm on the other side, I know that's not true. And so I'm putting a name and a face uh, to the issues that I think many people in law enforcement and the military are facing today. Yeah. 
That's awesome, Mike. You have quite a background for it too, and you've been through a lot and about the shooting and, and work on your own recovery. So what do you think now with, with everything going on, it's, it's hard enough for get first responders to admit that they have issues because we're made to, or we're trained, especially if you're in the military before you became a cop or a firefighter, you were trained to just withstand all this uh, stuff and be bigger than we might even think we are and uh, to be bulletproof. And what do we do now with, especially with the public, a lot of the public is against police and authority and the riots and the protests and all this stuff going on. It's, uh, it seems like a sense of dread a lot of times. I look out and or even review the news or, or talk to people. I work in the recovery field with just first responders and a lot of them don't want to go back. Well, that's the thing is what's happened in the last few months, it's unprecedented. I mean, it, it literally started with the COVID outbreak or the coronavirus and that created a whole bunch of issues that we're obviously still dealing with today, but that increased isolation, it incre- increased anxiety, that increased fear, not only of being exposed to this virus, but bringing that back home to your loved ones, being expected to do your job. I mean, as first responders, you can't work from home. You have to be out on the streets, interacting with the public, and potentially you're getting exposed, I mean, every single day, multiple times a day. And so that alone, really increased the anxiety, the fear, and I think the depression rates. Um, it had people shut themselves off. I mean, not just first responders, but their families as well. You know, we're used to having these outlets, whether it be going to meetings in person, working out at the gym, you know, going outside, all these things just really got limited. And so that started the effect. And what I think is really interesting is that the beginning of the corona outbreak the first responders were being lauded as heroes. I mean, if you looked at the stories, it was all positive. Uh, People were talking about obviously the nurses and the doctors, but the dispatchers, the firefighters, the cops, the paramedics, and all just absolute heroes. And you saw these great stories of the public outpouring, you know, like bringing meals to the police department, um, just doing these fundraisers, doing things to boost morale for our first responders. And then, of course, some bad things happen across the nation. Uh, Most notably is what happened in Minneapolis and the George Floyd incident. We're all aware of that. And, you know, personally, as a first responder, I am and I was outraged by that incident. And Mm -hmm. the thing is, is there are bad apples out there. Uh, Just like any profession, any calling, there's bad apples. Simple as that. I believe that 99.9% are good. They're doing the right things for the right reasons. But you have this, you know, one really bad case, which gets constant publicity, constant news exposure. And what happens is it just warps the perception of the general public of our law enforcement. And so, you know, when you're just a citizen, you're watching the news and you just see clip after clip after clip of just bad police shootings, um, you know, people dying in custody. You believe that is the norm and you believe that that's most officers are involved in activities like that and where you and I know that's not true. And so, man, this paradigm shift of being loved and coveted and just thanked to absolutely being hated now. And with that, and we've really seen this with the media and politicians, but there's been some incidents after Minneapolis and I'll just mention the one in in Atlanta uh, because I looked at that one. I studied it. I'm familiar with the taser. I've been involved in scenarios like that. And that was a justified shooting. 
it, it just was. And, I, and I'm going to put myself out there by saying that. But what happened is the media and the politicians especially is they, you know, they wanted these people arrested. They wanted them prosecuted, charged, fired, all these things just out of pure ignorance and outrage based off the Minneapolis incident. And so now you have these administrations and politicians who are overreacting. Um, they're taking their political stances and they're not doing the right thing. And so the key to my point here is that that support that we thought we had as first responders. And when I mean, I mean our community, which supported us. I mean, our own agencies right. and our city councils or city governments, the general public, that has all gone away. And, and our first responders, specifically law enforcement are out on an Island by themselves. Mm-hmm. And I can't even imagine the fact that now you have officers who are going to hesitate to use force when they should, and it's justified. It's going to cost more lives because all they can think about is being arrested, eventually prosecuted, losing everything, their retirement, their family. I mean, their, their freedom. And so you just take all that together and it's exacerbated what has already been an issue. And that is that our officers are suffering, you know, and they're still even more so right now being exposed to just traumatic incidents where they're being attacked physically, verbally. I mean, at all sides and it's constant. I mean, there is such a threat normally to officer safety on the job, but now those same officers are worried about when they go home, they're worried about people following them to their house. You know, if they happen to drive a marked or unmarked police vehicle to their residence, they're worried about people finding out now instead of being proud, like, Hey, you know, I'm proud to be a cop. They now have to try to hide it and not let people know that when they're off duty, because they don't want to be confronted. They don't want to be attacked when they're just minding their own business, you know, living their lives. But that's a reality. Of course. And you know, even like me wearing a shirt, I have like a, a flag on it. I have the first responder flag. Uh, I didn't even think about going outside. I even have a, a mask, a covering. It has a, a, it has a flag on it. It's black and white. It's more of like a military looking uh, uh, American flag. And someone said something about it to me when I was wearing it. I didn't even think about it until actually they said something. And I, sh- I shouldn't be a- a- afraid or ashamed to wear the American flag. I, I support America. I-, I-, I So many countless hundreds of thousands of people have died for this country. And uh, the incident like George Floyd uh, specifically I'll never forget where I was when I first viewed that video. My daughter actually showed me this. She goes, Dad, have you seen this? I, I No, what are you showing me? And I saw it, and I looked at it, and I was hor- horrified. And I'll never forget it. It was ingrained in my brain, and I knew at that moment, I go, things are definitely going to change. And it, it really is a shame that there is so much hatred out there, and the honor of uh, – getting into law enforcement or a first responder related field, even fire. I think it's diminished a lot because of this. And, and the guys and girls that are out there uh, doing this job to protect other people and with the passion to help, uh, they seem to be getting a lot of negative feedback and it's not deserved for all of us because there is a few that are bad and we're categorized as all being bad. So it's just like saying, uh, the protesters are all bad because there's a handful of looters that go around and rip off pharmacies and and burn things down. You know, there are peaceful 
people that want to have peaceful protests and you can't loop them all in together as one just because of a small few people. Absolutely. I, I agree with you a hundred percent and I'm all for protests. I think there's a purpose for that. There's a long history of protests in, in this country and that's one of our freedoms. But like you said, a lot of this is turning into absolute criminal activity and where savage attacks are happening, not just property crimes, but people are actually being injured and severely in many cases. And now you have these officers on the front lines who their job is to protect everybody, you know, not one side, but all sides and they're stuck in the middle and yet they're being attacked every single day. And when you take that also, the, the newest thing, the latest thing obviously is defund the police, right? And that's, that's the most recent conversation and we're already seeing the drastic effects across the country. I, I saw today, I believe it was in San Francisco, that the mayor, uh, London Breed, she's cutting, I think, $120 million um, to the budget for, you know, law enforcement and the police department. And the thing is, I'm all for reallocating some funds. I mean, there are programs that there can be more funding to that can help bridge the gap between law enforcement and the community. But to say just let's get rid of law enforcement, we don't need it, it's, it's absolutely absurd. And mm-hmm. the amount of change that we're seeing I mean, in policies and potentially laws and procedures, it, I mean, if you look at when this all started, it hasn't been that long. We're talking about a few months, mm-hmm. but the amount of change that's gone on, I mean, that's more change than we've had in years and years of, of this, this job and this industry. And so I, I'm just really scared to see what the future holds. And I still have a lot of friends who are actively working um, I talk to them regularly, and and I hate to say this, but if I was just starting out in law enforcement, I only had a couple years on, I would strongly consider switching careers. And I hate to say that because my entire life since being a little kid, I've always wanted to be in law enforcement. And everything I did, I strove and, and set myself up to have this career in law enforcement. And now I just cannot imagine doing the job. And so, you know, I don't know if the public wants us to be like firefighters. And when I say that, to just hang out in the station, uh, not be proactive at all, to not try to deter crime or prevent it, but literally just to wait for the really heinous calls, like an active shooter situation. And then we all leave the station and we go towards it, but we're not doing anything else. And that's absurd. I mean, we need first responders, specifically law enforcement, actively in our community, patrolling, uh, maintaining those relationships, letting people know they're safe. That, that's the thing is citizens have to know they're safe. Mm-hmm. And if there's no law enforcement, personally, I'm not going to feel safe. I'm not going to feel safe going out with my family and loved ones. I'm going to be concerned about my safety more than ever. And, and that's a real issue. It's a real concern. Right. Yeah, we defund the police and we take the officers off the street or just have them parked on a corner. Yeah, believe me, I worked with guys that are like that and um, it wasn't, I didn't respect that. I wanted to go out there and kick doors. I wanted to take people to jail. I wanted to do the right things. I wanted to be in my community. I wanted to be able to walk uh, and get a cup of coffee and talk to um, just people and, and not be worried about getting a, a bottle or a rock thrown in the back of my head and always have to look over my shoulder. You know, we, we're, we're trained to be hyper vigilant, but now it's just gone to an extreme where I think a lot of officers are, are not doing things anymore. They're not going out there and actively uh, being involved with the community. You know, community policing came out 
it, early in my career, it's been out for a while, but in the 90s, it got really big. And, you know, we had police in the schools. Now they're taking the police out of the schools and, uh, and sort of like putting them in a back burner. And a lot of agencies, too, are even thinking about going to um, straight ununiformed uh, officers with uh, concealed weapons. So you don't even know they're a police officer until they're right on you. And having trained psychologists right along with them uh, to contact the citizens. So there's a lot of different things going on. And uh, yeah, if, if it would have happened the first uh, year or two of my career, I would have been heartbroken. And I'm not sure what I would have done. I, I, I believe I just probably would have went, gone with the flow and see how it went and, uh, and took it from there. You know, even before this, we had a huge shortage among agencies across the nation in filling positions. I mean, it's been an ongoing issue where most departments are understaffed. And so now you take with this current mentality towards law enforcement, and you're going to have a real lack of people that want to do the job, that aspire to do this job. And so those shortages are going to be that much more severe. And I don't think people are thinking about these these long term results of these just really, you know, quick decisions that they're not thinking out. I mean, look at Berkeley, for example, Mm -hmm. they just approved and it's, I mean, it still has to be worked out, but they're going to have public works employees who are unarmed, who are not police officers doing traffic enforcement stops. And, you know, traffic enforcement stops are one of the most dangerous things we do. hundred percent. And that's where we get guns off the street. That's where we get dangerous people who are on the run, whether they're prolies at large or they've got warrants for their arrest. I mean, these are dangerous people that are driving around in our communities. And I've recently seen where I live, uh, the police department here constantly puts out NICS alerts and messages. And every single day I've seen car stops that have resulted in loaded weapons Mm -hmm. with felons. And it's like, well, who's going to stop those people? Who's going to contact them? Are you really telling me that, unarmed, untrained citizens. And oh, by the way, you don't think those people are going to have biases? I mean, it takes, most people don't realize the training and the education that not only does it take to initially become a police officer, but all the training that we constantly have throughout our career. You know, the public is not aware of that. And we're constantly training. We're constantly getting educated. Hundreds of hours. I had to add mine up before. You know, you have all these hours and classes and everything that we go, go through to get training and monthly training. I mean, it's not like we just take one physical and we're a cop for 25 years. Those days, if they were ever existed early on, they're gone. Absolutely. And, you know, most officers today too, is, at least in California, a lot already have their bachelor's degrees. Sure. Many are working on their master's degrees. And again, the public, they're not aware of that. Um, you know, it's very hard to become a police officer, not just the background, the medical, the psych, the academy, the field training program. And like you said about being proactive, I was like you. I mean, that's why I ended up as an undercover narc because I was doing, you know, 20, 30 stops a shift sometimes, arresting one or two people a day. And now why would you want to do that? You're only going to get complaints. You're probably going to get fired. You're going to get sued. You may get prosecuted for doing your job. And at the same time, you're putting your life on the line every single day for complete strangers. Who else is going to do that? No one, no one's going to do it. And you know, there's, is a lot of hurt. There's a lot of pain. There's um, so much history. Uh, it goes back, you know, hundreds of years. And, and I understand the pain, but the hate, I don't understand. 
and uh, we can get through this. We can work as a community and and get through this. But Michael, what about? I look. There's cops. There's uh. There's people in the fire service that want to get help. Let's say they've been through a lot of um, uh, injuries, maybe traumatic incidences. Maybe they were in the military before. We see so much stuff out there, and uh, a lot of us think that we can just hold it in and, and stuff it down and not talk about it. What about in these times, how do we go get help? And, and how did you get help? How hard was it for you to actually ask for help? Well, it's critical. The first thing I want to address with that is the suicide rate among law enforcement specifically. And this also does apply to firefighters and paramedics. But as of now, for this year alone, I believe we're at 100 reported suicides for this year. Uh, last year, there was 228. And the year before that, there was 174. Now, last year, the number of suicides far outnumbered the number of line of duty deaths. And what I mean by that is just, you know, officers, they get killed, whether it's a car accident, they're shot, they have a heart attack on duty. Um, But the facts are that as police officers, we are much more likely to die by our own hands than the hands of another. And that applies also for firefighters. And so, and those numbers are only going to go up. I mean, I hate to say that, but they're only going to go up. And so asking for help, it's critical. And there is a lot of help out there. I waited far, far too long. Um, I waited almost four years um, after my incident, but it was four years of reliving it through depositions, uh, reliving it through just everything that was going on in my personal life and losing my marriage. And I suffered literally for four years. And I became depressed. I thought about, you know, if I died on duty, I really didn't care. And what happened was about a month after my federal trial ended, my best friend, he's a Vietnam veteran, but he also did 35 years with the Walnut Creek Police Department. He was a reserve officer and my partner. He tried to kill himself when I was on duty. And I saw him right before they rushed him into emergency surgery. And thank God he survived. And he's here today. I see him every week. But he saved my life. Because I, at that point, was just on a downward spiral, and I was in a very dark place. And he's the one that got me to ask for help. When I saw that, I told myself, I cannot do that to my daughter. I can't do that to my family. And I decided to get help. Now, it wasn't easy. It was, to this day, the hardest thing I've ever done. And I still remember, I'd gone to the gym. I ended up just breaking down in my car in the parking lot for like two hours. It was actually on the anniversary of my shooting. And finally I just picked up the phone and I called the watch commander who was on duty. And I just, I said, look, I I can't come in. I need to get help. And I could tell, but you know, the watch commander was a little caught off guard and and I can't blame him. Um, And it was like, okay, well, you know, let me make some calls. We'll, We'll get some notifications going. And I ended up getting contact by an administrator Supportive, but at the same time, um, I almost felt like I was being talked out of it. Like it was almost like, are you sure? Are you sure that you want to do this? Are you sure that you want to go down this road? And what was specifically suggested to me was, you know, how about you just talk to this one counselor who's contracted with the agency and, and they're good. And we'll just kind of see where it goes from there. My thing was that I had talked to this therapist once or twice in those four years and great therapist. But I knew that I needed to go all in on this. Like I literally needed to 
devote 100% of my life at that time to my recovery and getting better. I didn't want to half-ass it. I didn't want to try to keep working and maybe see a therapist like once or twice a month. I knew that wasn't going to cut it. I knew that I was too far gone at that point where I was. The thing is, though, I do believe that if you catch this stuff early on and you address the issues as they come up instead of waiting like I did, I think that you can keep working. You can go talk to that therapist. And it's all about, you know, talking about this stuff is literally all it is. It's like talking about it openly. It's really expressing your real feelings, not being ashamed of what you're saying or how you feel, not worried about how people are going to judge you. But the key to that is trust. You got to have trust and you got to have confidentiality. You have to have somebody that you feel comfortable opening up to, but that you also know has an inkling or understanding of what you're going through. And you have to have those components. Um, With my agency, I mean, great agency. I have all the respect in the world for my agency, but I didn't have anybody at my agency that I felt that comfort level with. I mean, we had a peer support program. I had friends there. I had supervisors I respected, but I literally did not have anybody at that agency that I felt like I could truly open up to and talk to. Did you know of anybody at that time that actually got help and went back to the department and actually talked about being in recovery of any type, working through critical incidences? Because for the most part, the police departments will have like after action reports, after action debriefings. However, um, it's usually done after that. Well, we did for the major incidents, we had what's called critical incident debriefs. And that's usually where they bring in a therapist it's open to everybody that's involved in the incident, dispatchers, officers on scenes. It could be community service officers that were there. And um, it's a group setting, which is both good and bad. Um, it's good as long as you trust the people there and you can actually open up in front of these people. The real pro to it is if you get at least one person in that group that opens up, that's going to encourage the other ones to open up. And it, it kind of starts like a chain effect. Uh, of people just being real. Um, Cause I've been to crit- critical incident debriefs where it's like, you go around the room, everybody's like, I'm good. You're good. Yep. You're good. Sweet. You listen to the therapist for like, you know, an hour and you're like, man, this is cool. I got off the street. I didn't have to go shag these cold frauds yep. and you're not really even into it. You're just like, I'm going to check the box here. I'm doing this thing. And that happens. That's a reality. And so the, the key is that, you know, one thing that affects me may not affect you. A perfect example is, I mean, child deaths affects all of us, but they affect us differently. Um, For, you know, prior to having my daughter, they didn't affect me in the way that they did after I had my daughter. And those are things that we need to think about is that, you know, you may have an incident and maybe, you know, 90% of the people involved, they're all good. And so maybe you don't need a group debrief, but maybe you need a smaller debrief with just two people that are affected or maybe just a one-on-one. And so, but you have to have, like I said, not only those opportunities, but you have to have a culture that encourages that. And to, to answer what you asked me hmm. earlier in regards to that was, yeah, I knew about these critical incident debriefs, but I didn't know anybody who ever openly spoke about, you know, I was involved in this heinous incident. My life started falling apart. You know, I was going down the rabbit hole and I got help and here's the positive side. I didn't have that. And so that's where I come in. That's like exactly what I'm trying to do is to say, I'm that person. I'm going to be that advocate. I'm going to be outspoken and show you that it's normal, that there is help and that you can, can get better. And I think if I would have had that at my agency, um, where I had that example, I think that would have played 
not only a, a different role in my recovery and where I was at, but in the administration and the culture. And I didn't feel that in my culture. I felt like, you know what? We have a peer support program. It's checking the box. It sounds good on paper. Yeah, they go to good training and they do. They go to these cool conferences and have their cool little retreats. But you don't really see it being used at the officer level or especially as a sergeant level. And that's the other thing. I was at a medium agency. I was a sergeant. So I'm like in that middle ground where I'm a supervisor. I'm not part of the POA. I'm part of the PMA. And I'm tied in with administrators, but they're my boss. And so I'm in this weird gray area where I can't open up really to the line level officers. And then I even had some lieutenants tell me like, hey, when the captains come down, like just put on a happy face, pretend like everything's all good. And if they ask you how you're doing, you just say, yeah, I'm doing great, sir. And and smile on. And that's bullshit. But that's the culture, right? I mean, that's exactly the culture I'm talking about. And I'm going to, I'm going to call an agency. I I spoke at uh, Vacaville PD, which is in Northern California, outstanding agency. I've never worked there. Um, I have lived in Vacaville. They brought me in to speak to their officers. I spoke to all their officers, all their different shifts. I spoke to the chief. I spoke to some administrators there who had just met me and they fully opened up to me. I mean, the culture there is amazing. It's, it's totally different. It's, it's accepted. It's talked about. There is an example, and I later met this lieutenant, outstanding man, but I'd heard a story from the chief where they had a department training for peer support, and it was unplanned. It wasn't part of the training, but this lieutenant ended up opening up in front of the whole department and shared his deep personal experience about these very traumatic incidents and the toll it had taken and the the help that he sought. And by doing that, that's leadership. That showed the line level officers, especially the brand new officers that, Hey, it's okay to do this. This Lieutenant just opened up in this room full of people and just spilt his guts in front of everybody. When you do that, that's leadership. That's power. And that, that breaks the stigma that changes the culture. And we need more of that in our agencies. Yeah, definitely. I totally agree with that. And that's what needs to be done for things to change in the positive and to break that stigma against mental health issues among first responders and others as well. And if we have the, the command staff, the brass, they're actually talking about what they've gone through and not just, you know, shoving it aside or sweeping under the rug and just saying, you know, let's get back out there and, and, and shake it off. You're okay. That's done with. We can't do that anymore because we have to be good ourselves emotionally, physically, spiritually to actually be there to help other people and to get through this too, to get through all this, the rage that is out there. And the news plays upon all of this. And Thank you so much, Michael, for speaking out because it's people like you. It's people like you going to departments, uh, having speaking engagements, going on podcasts, talking about your story and, and, and offering help and guidance and maybe opening up that door a little bit for that one person that is contemplating suicide, that has um, you know, plans of, of ending it all because they think their life is hopeless and no one will listen to them. You and I both know that is not true, and there is help out there, confidential, uh, trusted help. And believe me, I, I was a cop for 19 years, and I, I still to this day, I double-check facts. I double-check everything. I want to make sure that I 100% trust something before I go into it or even recommend something. So I, I love what you're doing, and I think this is so uh, beneficial that you're going out there and, and making these contacts because you don't know 
who it's going to affect and where they're going to pass it on to. And, and the thing is, I'm not special. My experience is not special. Um, I'm not unique. And, uh, you know, in the West Coast post-trauma retreat that we have both right. attended to, they, they refer to, you're, you're not a special snowflake. No. And uh, we're not. And, and that's the thing is that, you know, there is so many more first responders that have been involved in far more traumatic incidents than I have. And, and not only just the big ones, but just years and years of all the small ones and, and you don't deal with them. And, you know, we're good operational. Like when we're working, I call that we're operational. We're in the mindset, we're in the mode and we're just going call to call to call to call. Right. As you know, a lot of the problems arise when officers are out on injury. It could be for like a physical injury, but they're separated from the department and they're not operational. And so what happens is they've slowed down and now they have time to really start thinking about like all this crap they've been in, exposed to they've been involved with and they don't have work to hide behind because so many officers they just want to work work overtime they want to be away from the family and not deal with the real issues and so when they're off these issues come up and also as you know with the program that we volunteer for Mm -hmm. a lot of officers don't realize till a year or two after they've already retired how messed up they are again because they're not operational they're not in the job and one thing I haven't addressed too is that they've lost their identity. For, ah, I was going to say the same for, damn thing. <laughs> well, see, great minds think alike. That's right. right. We know, right? <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing is for, and I, and I hate to speak out. I mean, I'm obviously speaking for myself, but when I say this, I'm speaking about my experience with fellow officers and first responders. And being a first responder, being a firefighter or a cop is so much a part of our life and our identity that our friends, our family, even ourselves, that's how we identify ourselves. And so when you retire and you walk out that door and guess what? You don't hear from people there. I mean, you may hear from one or two people, but they go on. It's a job. Like you're a number filling a position. And when you're gone, you are forgotten about all those great accomplishments that you thought you did. and, And that those things that you implemented or you brought to the department, the agency, those have been forgotten about. And you know, honestly, I hate to say it, but they've moved on and there's new people that have taken your place and they're going to do the same thing. And so I think it's really important, you know, when we speak to officers, we also address the ones that have retired. And I'm hoping that if, you know, people are listening to this podcast, that not only does it touch the family members of first responders, because that's really important and the first responders themselves, but also the retirees. And, and with all that's going on, our retirement numbers are going to skyrocket because people are done. They want to get out while they still can, you know, before they're arrested and prosecuted and they lose everything they have. So the retirement numbers are just skyrocketing. So we have kind of like the perfect storm. You know, we've talked about the virus. We've talked about the George Floyd incident. We've talked about the change, the the sentiment against law enforcement, how it used to be very supportive, admired. Now you're almost hated. And now you have the defunding. So you're taking money from police departments. Well, guess what? I'm sure that's going to affect like peer support. It's going to affect trainings. It's going to affect resources available to our officers. I mean, it's not going to help. I can tell you that much. So we have this perfect storm of all these negative things aligning and the retirement numbers skyrocketing so many more people are going to need help and they're not going to realize it until they're not operational anymore. And I hope they do get help. I hope, uh, 
podcast like this and, and us speaking out against it and, and for it, that they can get that help. And, and losing your identity is, is a really big issue because a lot of us can go through a whole career, uh, be honorable, do everything that they, were, they wanted to do, uh, feel good about themselves, feel proud about themselves, having the respect of their peers, and then they retire uh, with their pension and they decide to like, just go. A lot of us end up leaving the profession and say, I'm done. I'm not going to be a cop anymore. I'm going to keep these numbers. I'm going to call a couple friends that they'll be my lifelong buddies. And, and they do start falling by the wayside and you lose contact with the people in the departments. And, and, and what do you do then? I mean, you've spent 25, if you can, if you can make it 25, 30 years, maybe 35 years and spend your whole uh, adult life in uh, in the career of a first responder field and then all of a sudden it's gone and what do you do uh, a lot of us end up drinking a lot of us end up doing other things a lot of us end up just moving away and just disappearing you never hear from them again and i think that there's a lot of other options especially if you're able to look at yourself and say yeah I've got some issues. I'm not this tough guy that I thought I was the whole time. I was putting on a lot of different masks and, and that's over now because if I can't take care of myself, I can't be there for my family. I can't be there for my friends. I can't be there for my grandkids and know that there are places uh, uh, like uh, WCPR. It's a, it's a wonderful place. It's a great place uh, of healing and there's lots of places out here like that. And if we could just get people to maybe even make a phone call. I mean, what if they went and called you and talked to you on the phone? I'm sure that you'd be available for them to direct them or maybe ask, answer some questions or maybe just be there to listen to them. And that's the key is, is listening and having somebody that you can talk to. And, and I do have people that reach out to me and open up and, and share their experiences. And, and the thing about that is one thing I want to mention is one of the greatest resources that I found and I found this early on in my recovery, thanks goodness, but I found this out two weeks after I went off work is first responder support group meetings. And I still go to those. Um, they have them all over the United States. Um, in California where I live, I mean, there is like probably at least 10 within driving distance of where I live held on different days of the week. Usually they're an hour long. They're open to any first responder, whether you're still working or you're retired, and it's 100% confidential. Um, the meetings I go to, there's dispatchers, there's paramedics, firefighters, police officers, you name it. Mm -hmm. And the cool thing about this was early on in my recovery, and this was key, is I found out I wasn't alone. But I also made friendships with people that I could trust completely. I mean, these were people that I just met and in a matter of a meeting or two, not only did I hear them share things that they haven't shared with most people, but I was able to open up and share things that I couldn't even share with people in my own agency. And so it's like this group of trusted friends has just grown and grown and grown. And I really highly encourage you. They're free. It doesn't cost any money. Um, the meetings you can go to, it's called FRSN which is the first responder support network. You can just Google that and they have some hyperlinks on that page. And that's the group that runs the West coast post trauma retreat. And there's a link on there and it will say like, um, I believe it says like first responder support group meetings and literally it opens up a PDF. It has all the locations. It tells you the day of the week, the time, and it has a point of contact phone number that way. And in my case, I reached out to that person and I was able to talk to them 
before I went to the meeting. That way they could kind of explain it to me, kind of give me a heads up. So they knew I was coming. Yeah, sort of vet you out too to make sure you're a first responder. You know, absolutely. That's a big thing. And I, and I know that there's other support groups like that too. And, uh, Orange County, San Diego, it's, it's based off the same thing. It's sort of like uh, based off an AA meeting, although it's not like an AA meeting. It's for first responders suffering from PTS, drugs, alcohol, or just like they want to be part of a community that they understand each other and can get through some things too and talk. And it's, it's just a discussion meeting. And literally some meetings, I don't say anything. I just listen and I absorb. And some meetings, I do say something. Uh, but regardless of that, I get something out of it every single time. Right. And I also usually see a new face there too, every single time. And, and how encouraging is that? But that's because that's word of mouth. You know, these things, I never knew about it. I mean, f- almost 21 years in law enforcement, I never knew about these meetings until I finally went off work. And my therapist is the one that actually told me about it and gave me the point of contact. I, I wouldn't have known about it. And so that's why I want to talk about it. It's free. It's a great resource. You know, you can go, there's so many different days and times you can find one that works with your schedule. And, and so right I just, now, right now with zoom, it's sort of hard to get there in person. I don't know of a lot of meetings that are open. However, get used to it. I'm, there's a lot of meetings that and I'm sure these meetings too are zoom. I'm, I'm sure that they're going zoom now, or maybe some are still in person. I'm yeah, they, sure. they are on Zoom right now. And obviously when the COVID stuff's over, they will go back to import, in person. Yeah. Um, and that's why it's key that, you know, you contact the, the point of contact. That way they can kind of vet you out. You'll feel comfortable and then you can get the actual information for the meetings. Right. That's awesome, Michael. So um, thank you so much for being back on. Oh, absolutely. It's my pleasure. Uh, is there anything else you want to talk about? I mean, what should, what should we talk about? Um, we've gone through a lot of different things. Um, I do want to talk about one program that I haven't mentioned before in any of my uh, podcasts. And the reason why I want to talk about it is because this program is free. Um, they actually, they work off, they get donations and uh, a lot of people pay for scholarships for people to attend this program, mm-hmm. but it's called Save a Warrior. And I encourage people to, to Google it, to research it. Like I said, it's free. It will not cost you any money. Um, Right now, I believe there's two physical locations. They do one in Ohio and they do one in Southern California. It was actually founded by um, a Green Beret. And when it first started out, it was for military only. And in fact, it was for, I believe, only uh, male military members. And it's been around for years and it's evolved now to include first responders and also females as well. And so I'm actually going to be attending that program next month. And the reason why I mentioned that to you is because, you know, I've been on a long road to recovery, but the simple fact is I have more work to do and it's, you've got to maintain it. You got to keep on it. It's like going to the gym, you know, you can go work out six months, you get in great shape, but if you stop working out all of a sudden, you're going to gain weight, you're going to get lethargic, you're eventually going to be out of shape again. And so the same thing applies with PTSI. It's an injury. It's a physical injury to the brain caused by, you know, prolonged and repeated exposure to trauma. And although, like I said, I'm in a lot better place, I still need to maintain. I still need to do work. And again, I didn't know about this program for a long time. I found out about it after the West Coast post-trauma retreat, which you and I attended. Yeah. And that program is phenomenal. It's it's life-saving, but it does cost money. And a lot of times, 
agencies, work comp uh, will pay for it. They do do scholarships. Right. Some people even pay their way through. But the simple fact is, especially now with the way the economy is, that can be a barrier for people to attend. Of that's why I really encourage you just to, you know, just Google it. Look into Save a Warrior. Look into the West Coast Post-Trauma Retreat. They're both about a week long, a little bit less, and they're residential, so you're living there. And both are absolutely life-changing, and they're both different programs because, you know, one thing may work for one person but not for the other. And right. so just explore, you know, know the resources out there. It's good to have that information because a lot of us don't know. I'll talk to uh, departments. I'll call people up and I'll ask them, or just meet them wherever. And I go, have you ever heard of, um, you know, Save a Warrior? Have you ever heard of a West Coast Trauma Retreat? And a lot of them haven't. Uh, they haven't heard of Copline, the 24-7 service, uh, you know, free they, they, we don't really hear about those things, but as we talk more and more about it and, and people like you go to saw, um, guy that I work with, uh, Maddie, he, uh, he went there and he, he comes and teaches, uh, uh, warrior meditation. I've been doing that and you'll learn that too while you're there. It's, it's amazing. Uh, and, and in our recovery, PTS, whether it's alcohol, whether, whatever we're dealing with, when we're working a positive recovery program, it's important to continue just like West coast, just like going to saw doing things, uh, maybe getting individual therapy. It's, it's good to have someone on your side that you can actually release some of that energy uh, that you're holding inside and, and be confident that it's going to be a trusted, uh, trusted conversation and having these groups, you know, being in a group and not having to say anything and feeling comfortable when you are ready to, to say something that, uh, there'll be people there that understand you 100% because they come from the same, uh, the same type of field that we do. Absolutely. And, you know, one thing we haven't talked about too, is that, you know, within this uh, process, if you are injured, and again, that's why I stress the PTSI, it's an injury. It's a sure. physical injury to the brain. It's no different than, you know, an officer going out for a knee injury or a shoulder injury, but you need to know the resources and you also need to know that, you know, at times you may have to get a work comp attorney. Mm -hmm. You have to look out for your rights. You have to protect yourself. Um, one thing I haven't talked a lot about, but I think it's important is that, you know, when I finally did ask for help, my city was supportive and my agency overall was supportive, but I had an administrator who made it very difficult for me and set me back in my recovery several times. And, you know, my whole goal was, to go back to work after this. That was my goal. And that was my plan. And I was making progress. And yet I had this, and it was only one individual. Like I said, my, my agency is a phenomenal agency. I had one individual who was hampering my progress. And I neglected getting an attorney for about eight months until finally I got backed into a corner. And I, I saw that, you know, here I am trying to do the right thing. And I, and I was actually giving this person updates, even though I shouldn't have, but just being completely honest, like letting them know how positive West Coast was therapy, all these things I was doing. Cause I was, I was proud of it. You know, I was, but that got used against me. And so, you know, I, I hate to bring this in, but you do have to look out for yourself. Right. And if it gets to the point where you feel like your agency isn't being supportive or doing the right thing, then I highly encourage you to seek out a reputable work comp attorney who deals with post-traumatic stress. And this is no different than if you had one for, like I said, a shoulder injury, a back injury. And let's face it, we talk about 
IA investigations. Yeah. I remember being a rookie cop. And the first thing the officer said to me was, I don't care if you did it, didn't do it. If you get accused of something, you get your LDF attorney. It's paid for. You're not paying for it. Take advantage of it. Protect yourself. And it's the same thing here. You got to protect yourself. Um, you just have to. Yep. So I, I highly encourage that. Like I said, I, I, I hate to bring that up, but it's a reality. And I want to make sure that we cover all assets of this. I mean, there's a lot of good resources. There's a lot of good feeling things. But at the same time, the work comp process is extremely stressful. And that alone can sometimes push people over the edge. So seek out help. Know your resources. Definitely, Michael. It's such good information. Such good information. Well, thank you so much for being on. This is actually the 50th show. And it's actually, wow. yeah. So there you go. You're on last year and here we're finally at 50. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. All right, man. Well, you have eight. What about if someone wants to get a hold of you? How can they get a hold of you, Mike? Uh, a couple things. I actually, and this is new since we last talked, but I help manage a Facebook page. It's called First Responders First. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's basically, there's a lot of resources on there. Um, I put articles about PTS or those types of related as it applies to firefighters, paramedics, dispatchers, law enforcement. Um, also, all my podcast interviews are on there, my news interviews. Nice. Um, so that's one way to just see the content and get resources. But the best way to contact me is on LinkedIn. And that's simply just by plugging in my first and last name. Um, I do have all my podcasts and interviews on there as well. And I constantly update that with, with good information. So send me a message on LinkedIn. I check it several times a day and I will get back to you. I will reply. I promise. Right on, Michael. I'm telling you, Michael, this is, things are going to change. It's going to change because of people like you uh, speaking out against this and, uh, and talking about it and being open about it and uh, not worrying. So thank you so much for being on again. I appreciate it, man. My brother. Thank you, brother. All right. Everybody else, uh, be good to each other and have a great, great rest of your week. I'll talk to you soon. Michael, you're awesome, buddy. Thank you for listening to Positive Connections Radio in affiliation with Mental Health News Radio. Have a great rest of your day, and until next time, be strong, stand up, speak your truth, and break the stigma.